Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our first September edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. It's Ian Mendes, Sean McAdoo with you just uh, ahead of the Labor Day weekend, ahead in this next hour or so. We'll hit on a suddenly busy and somewhat juicy news cycle in the NHL, including the battle between Carolina and Montreal over Jesperi Kotkaniemi. We'll touch on the Jack Eichel soap opera as well. Plus, we've got a ton of listener feedback that we got to get through from all of those fun August shows that we did. So we did like the Hall of Fame debates, and I know we've got uh, one of our listeners who's passionate about our omission of Patrick Eliash. We'll get to that. Our what-if scenarios includes the LA Kings and a uh, and a illegal stick. So we'll get to all of that. And as always, we'll get back to wrapping up our show with a little This Week in Hockey History and how the Devils and the Blues got into a sticky offer sheet situation involving Brendan Shanahan and Scott Stevens. And uh, tell you what, Sean, uh, sticky situations and RFAs. Uh, that was, uh, you know, basically uh, 1991. We're talking 30 years ago uh, that that happened. And we got ourselves a full-out sticky situation. So I did a podcast earlier this week with both Sarah Sivian and Arpin Basu, uh, who cover the Hurricanes and the, and the Canadians, um, respectively. And I asked them, like, give me the like the exact moment you found out that this was happening, what was going through your mind. So what about you? Because you're a guy that always talks about, you know, you would love to see more RFA offer sheets and this kind of becoming a little bit more of a useful tool in the tool bag for GMs. What was down goes Brown's reaction to the Carolina uh, Hurricanes and their very aggressive and unique Offer sheet that yes, Perry Cod can So first of all, I found out in a very fun way, which is uh, I've been trying during the off season to mostly stay off of Twitter. Which for me, stay off of Twitter means not be on Twitter twenty four hours uh, a day. And so I I hadn't been I hadn't been on, and I just went and I checked, and I saw something about the fallout to this offer sheet and I didn't know what the offer sheet was 
So I had this wonderful section of time where I was trying to figure out, okay, who just got offer sheeted? Like, did somebody do Elias Peterson? Is Brady Kachuk? Like, who, all the names were flowing through my mind. And when I saw it was Kokanemi, I was kind of like, oh, okay. I mean, that's that's all right. But then I saw who the team was, and I started, you know, like everyone else, it, it, did, it wasn't very hard to put the uh, put the pieces of the puzzle together and realize everything that was going on in the background and the the drama and the, the just the pettiness of it. Um, and then, yeah, I, I sure I was probably like most fans. If you're not a fan of Carolina or Montreal, uh, you you grab your bit of popcorn and you just sit back and and you watch and you wait uh and and you you see how it all plays out and uh we're almost a full week into it and we're still kind of waiting at least as we record this uh we we don't know what montreal is going to do which is really this is fascinating stuff to me like it's it's interesting from a personality standpoint just with, with the teams and the people involved it's interesting from a roster building strategy standpoint like what what do you do how do you get a player from another team with an offer sheet how do you defend against an offer sheet what do you do when one comes in and you have to make a decision uh i'm just really interested to see how this plays out what mark bergevin does what he has to say about it afterwards um and then we all get to sit back and and watch the fallout and watch this player on whichever team he ends up being on for the coming season it's it's gonna be uh Really interesting stuff from a league that typically doesn't give us very interesting stuff to chew on this time of year. And I think what what makes this one interesting is it is truly, uh, I guess, predatory is the term, but it's an offer sheet the way offer sheets are supposed to be presented, which is, oh, man, now you've you've created a conundrum for the team that has the rights to Kotkaniemi. Because if you go back to the Sebastian Ajo thing – as much as I know, obviously it ruffled Carolina's feathers that they, they it was like twenty one million dollars they had to pay him out in the first twelve months. But outside of that, it was a pretty easy decision. You're like, ah, oh, you know yeah. what? At, at that term and that AAV, it's almost like if you take out the front loaded aspect of that contract, the Canadians kind of did Carolina a little bit of a favor because that's a that's a very good player at a fairly reasonable contract. This yeah, one, I mean, it's right? yeah, I I know there's 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 some in Carolina who object to the did them a favor phrasing just because they they probably could have got him for even less than that if they if he hadn't had the leverage of an offer sheet but that one had no chance of succeeding there there was right there was no unless carolina was literally couldn't come up with the money and they had 7 days there there's th- th- that one had no hope and and that's typically how these ones have gone like even you go back Ryan O'Reilly, remember Ryan O'Reilly with with when Calgary tried to get him out of Colorado, Colorado matched so quickly that we didn't realize that that whole waiver situation was in play that we only found out afterwards uh, because Colorado basically instantly matched uh, with Shea Weber. Nashville took a little bit of time to think about it, but not very much. I, I can't remember the last time we had an offer sheet that went this long with genuine uncertainty. But this is, you're right. This is how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to make the other team have a hard decision to make. And sometimes that might be based on their cap situation. It might be based on the player. In this case, I think it's based on Carolina uh, knowingly and admittedly overpaying the player. They, they are, by giving him this high of a cap hit, they are 
shifting his value and diminishing his value because every player in this league, your value is tied to your cap hit. And Carolina is diminishing the value of the player they're signing, which sounds crazy and sounds like something you would never do, but it makes sense because they are pushing his value down enough that it now makes it a difficult decision for Carol uh, for for Montreal because if they if they had signed him to an offer sheet with a cap hit that started with a 3 it's an it's an easy match for Mark Bergerman it's not something he even has to think about it the fact that the number is so high and frankly so much higher than it should be under ordinary circumstances is also exactly what makes it possible that they're actually going to get the player this time uh and it's 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 really interesting just, you know, from a, again, just from the, the game theory, the strategy that goes into this, uh, they have approached this, I think, in a, a much better way in terms of having a shot at getting the player than than Montreal did uh, two years ago. And then, of course, it leads to the question of should they want to get the player at this number and is that going to be the right move? And time will tell. Yeah. And I think what's really important to point out, there's a couple of things here that um, I think it's really important that that we understand it, our listeners understand it, and that is people. You'll hear people say, "Well, now Jesperi Kotkaniemi's floor will always be six million dollars," and that's not necessarily the case. Because, and let let's just play out this scenario. Let's say the Habs don't match, and they're like, "You know what? It's not worth it. Six point one. Let him go." After January first, the Carolina Hurricanes could conceivably. Sign Jesperi Kotkaniemi to a four-year deal at an AAV of four per. Like, like there's that's really important. That the the only time that that six million dollar figure comes in is if we get back to next year at this time and he hasn't been uh, signed to a contract extension. That's when they got to qualify him at that number. You can try and get it a little bit lower. Like I think it's eighty-five percent, but that's the only time. Like I think it's really important for people to understand. After January 1st, yes, Barry Kotkaniemi can be signed to any contract of any term with any AAV, and it doesn't have to be starting with a six. It could be starting with a three, a four, whatever. So there, there is something to be said for uh, the Kotkaniemi camp. What if Carolina went to him and said, listen, we're going to make this predatory offer sheet, get this done. Let's have a deal done in the drawer for January 2nd that's a little bit more reasonable for us because we, you know, and that's the type of thing that could happen. Whereas if the Habs match... I feel like, yes, tell me if I'm wrong here. I feel like, yes, Perry Kotkanemi has one foot out the door. Otherwise, you wouldn't, would you sign an offer sheet with a $20 signing bonus? I, like, this is really sticking it to the Montreal Canadiens. And Kotkaniemi, in some regard, is complicit. Like, you could have, you could have signed that deal and just said, listen, do you mind just taking out the $20 offer uh, signing bonus? Like, I, I think that you could have done that, couldn't you? I Yes, you could have. Um, although... If I'm a two or three million dollar player and somebody wants to offer me six million dollars, I don't know that I'm going to push back too much on on the twenty dollar punchline <laughs> that they want to slide. And, and I mean, he may not even have known that might have been somewhere they go to the agent and go, "We're going to drop this in there," and they say, "You know what? Yeah, I, you want to double my salary? I'm not going to worry too much about uh, a twenty dollar dig you want to throw at somebody." But uh, you're right. I mean, that this is. This is part of when we talk about how come there's no offer sheets in the NHL, and this is something that commonly gets brought up, is the player has to sign it. Now, that doesn't always mean that the player wants out. It, it doesn't mean that there's something fundamentally broken in the relationship. Um, you know, the, the Sebastian Ao thing, 
he probably knew when he signed that that it was going to get matched and this was just a way for him to get his contract done and move on um maybe or uh you know we'll we'll never really know i guess but uh in this case just it's it's not simply the fact that he signed the offer sheet but everything that went with it the way that his development has gone over the last three years being sent down being a healthy scratch in the stanley cup final you know that this isn't this isn't something where Montreal has made it abundantly clear that they love this guy and 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 want him to be part of the team going forward and and he's eyeing the door. This there there's been a bit of this on both sides. So um you're right. Carolina could have uh could could sign him to an extension. We need to be a little bit careful here. They can't have a done deal in their back pocket right now. Um they're they're not allowed to do that until January 1st. Nothing is binding. And, you know, could they sign him to an extension with a cap hit that started with a four or five? Yes, they could do that. Um, Could they do what I've seen some people suggest and sign him to an extension with a $2 million cap hit? And then it turns out that the $6 million was just front load and really it was a different deal. Uh, There are, put it this way, anything that Gary Bettman thinks was done under the table or done in a way to circumvent or make this um unfairly difficult for Montreal. Gary Bettman has very vast powers to step in and and slap a team on the wrist for doing certain things. And Carolina's a smart team. They're they're not going to have anything done and signed and sealed that they're they're not allowed to have done. So I do think that's up in the air a little bit. Um but you're right. If if he goes back to Montreal, they match and there's bad feelings. He can absolutely say, you know what? I don't want to talk to you guys about an extension. Talk to me in the summer, and it the 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 qualifying offer starts with a six. And uh, uh, if you don't want to give me that, then I walk as a free agent. You get nothing. Okay. So one one of the options as well that I think you kind of laid out in your column this week for Mark Bergevin is, and I and I think and I and I apologize because I don't have your column up in front of me, but I think it was the Chris Gratton situation back in the day. But there is a potential that the Habs and the Canes could work something out. However, the amount of toxicity between the two franchises would seemingly make that a non-starter. But could you walk us through what potentially could happen involving uh, Kotkaniemi goes to Carolina, but the Habs don't necessarily get a first and a third back. They get a different form of compensation. Right. So this is, uh, first of all, a, a couple of things that are important is, number one, the moment that the offer sheet gets signed, Montreal can no longer trade the player. They they cannot trade, for example, trade his rights to some other team and say, you can match if you want him. Uh, they they can, He is untradeable during the week that they have to figure out if they want to match. And if they do match, he is also cannot be traded during the coming season. Um, it's it's one year where he essentially, it's it's not even a no trade clause. It's because no trade clauses can be waived. He cannot be traded by the Montreal Canadiens. So if they match, they are stuck with him for good or for bad for the year. But there are a couple scenarios where Mark Bergevin can trade his way out of this. The one that I mentioned, the Chris Gratton situation, is in theory, Mark Bergevin can pick up the phone, he can call Don Waddell and say, look, I'm not, I, I'm not going to let this player go for a first and a third. That doesn't fit what my team is looking for right now. It doesn't fit where we are uh, as far as our Stanley Cup window, if if I have to choose between a first and a third or matching the offer, I'm matching the offer. But 
if you could sweeten the offer a little bit, I might be willing to to let the player go. And that could be a situation where it's, you know, maybe it's it's better picks. Maybe it's a prospect instead of pick. Maybe it's a player off the roster, something like that. Let's work out a deal where you give me something else in exchange uh, for, for Kotkaniemi and, and then I let him go. Now, you can't negotiate the compensation that is built into the CBA and it can't be changed. But what you could do is basically have a handshake deal that says, I'm not going to match. And then as soon as I get the first and the third, I flip one or both of those picks back to you in exchange for something else. That happened with Chris Gratton in 90, the late 90s and 97, yeah. I want to say. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And and it was in, in he signed an offer sheet that was four first round picks. It was Philadelphia and Tampa, but Tampa didn't want the picks. So they flipped the picks back or at least some of the picks back and they got uh, Mikel Renberg. That whole situation didn't work out. They ended up flipping the players back for each other a year later, which was kind of funny. Um, this is one of those things. It's interesting in theory. And there is nothing in the rule book that would prevent the teams from doing this. But realistically, uh, a couple of problems. First of all, there's clearly some bad blood between yeah. these two teams. So <laughs> I don't I don't know that Don Waddell and Mark Bergevin are having any conversations, period. Uh, the other problem is it's been reported, at least, that that the two teams did talk about a trade before the offer sheet was made. And obviously they couldn't agree on compensation at that point. And that could have been anything, picks, players, what have you. So if if they couldn't agree back then when Kotkanemi was theoretically a two or three million dollar player, I, I don't know why they would be able to come up with a deal now that he's a six million dollar player. But they could. In theory they could. The far more likely situation, and the way that I still think this ends, is that Mark Bergevin right now is furiously calling around the league saying, what can I get that will help me right now in exchange for Carolina's first and third uh, draft picks that I'm going to get as compensation? And and I still think that's a, a realistic way that this works out is that Mark Bergevin says, I'm not going to match. Have fun with your new $6 million player but I don't want the first and third pick. I'm going to take that first and third pick and flip it to some other rebuilding team that wants draft picks. And I'm going to get help right now. And if it plays out that way, that could actually be a win, win, win for all three teams involved. Carolina gets the guy they want. Montreal gets better today because they could get a veteran guy who's better than Kotkaniemi is right now to help them try to get back into the playoffs and back after a Stanley cup. And then some rebuilding team gets draft picks that, uh, that, that they're going to want. I, I still feel like that's the the exit strategy here that actually works for, for all the teams involved. Yeah, and, and, and a good example of that would be a guy like Thomas Hurdle, where maybe Thomas Hurdle is, you know, San Jose is looking to move him. They're looking for a first-round pick and something else. And then all of a sudden, like you said, that, that, that's a scenario where it could be uh, win, win, win. Let me ask you this question because I asked Arpin uh, who covers the Habs. I asked him this in the bonus episode of the podcast we did after this offer sheet came out, okay? And you and I, I think had talked about this earlier in the summer. I asked you the question, who gets booed the loudest at the Bell Center next season, okay? So new, uh, new uh, options here. So which player, which visiting player gets booed the loudest at the Bell Center next year? A, Mark Shifley. B, Nikita Kucherov. C, yes, Barry Kotkaniemi. Uh, this, uh, a new contender emerges. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. hockey fans have short memories. I feel like the the recency here, uh, it, it might be Kotkaniemi because 
this is one of those things we've talked about in the past that that booing returning players a lot of times doesn't make sense when fans do it because it's a guy you know he got traded or he just left his free agent he didn't do anything wrong he uh whereas this is a case where you could argue that this guy is orchestrating his exit and and he's kind of putting the screws to the team the way he did it I, i think it might be him um even though you know what what you know shifley did on the ice was far worse and, and Kucherov I mean it was pretty funny but uh that that should also earn you some booze but yeah it's good if, if you're man if you're a Montreal hockey fan you like booing the other the other team's players you're you're in for a big year because uh it's it's gonna be uh you're gonna have a lot of options yeah so the last thought on this offer sheet stuff is obviously people like you and I uh, hockey fans we 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 want this right we cheer for the maximum chaos we love it we love the drama that comes with with this type of 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 uh, offer sheet, you think that this opens the door to more offer sheets? And I'm going to throw out some names here because there are still some legitimately uh, high end. In fact, the the guys I'm going to mention, I think, are certainly in a stratosphere above a Jesperi Kotkanami. So I'm talking Kirill Kaprizov, Rasmus Dahlin, Brady Kachuk, the two in Vancouver, and Elias Pettersson and and Quinn Hughes. Do you think we see any? offer sheets there like and if you're one of those teams the buffaloes minnesotas ottawa vancouver should you be worried that uh oh like maybe we're entering a new era of teams being a little bit more emboldened to uh to make an offer sheet yeah i I, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because i think there's two ways you can look at it and it might depend on on what the outcome is here The, the first way to look at it is you say montreal tried to get a superstar when they they offer sheet at Sebastian Aho. And here's what they have to show for it. They didn't get the player. The, uh, Carolina instantly matched. Everybody kind of laughed at Montreal going, what were they thinking? Why did they think that was going to work? And now two years later, they're being targeted in what seems pretty clearly to be a retaliatory situation. So the message here is don't try. Uh, Mark Bergevin, whatever you thought of the, the, the offer sheet that he tried in 2019, at least he used one. He, he was finally the GM that, that actually opened the toolbox and used a tool that was available to him. And, and here's his payback. Here's what you get. So the answer if you're a GM is don't do offer sheets at all. Uh, that's one way to look at it. Now, the flip side of that is if this offer sheet works, if Montreal lets the player go and Carolina gets him, that sort of changes the perception because the, the biggest reason people always ask me, how come there's no offer sheets? Is it because the GMs are all buddy-buddy? Is it because of the compensation, this or that? The reason there's no offer sheets is because they never work. If this right. one does work, that suddenly might shift the balance. I think if, if Montreal just matches and just takes the player, that could be it for offer sheets because I think a lot of GMs will say, you're just going to get retaliation. You're just going to run into problems. And oh, by the way, Carolina gave this guy twice the money he should have got, and it still didn't work. What's the point? Uh, I'm not going to bother with it. Um, but if it does work, then yeah, that does, you know, th- th- there should be at least a few owners calling up their GMs going, how come we never do this? How come, you know, look at all of these great right. players that are out there. How come you're not taking a run at these guys? Are you? Are you considering it? Are you Are you thinking about a way to do this? Or are you telling me that you can't, even though it's right there in the CBA? And, and by the way, you know, we have offshoots in the NBA teams use them all the time. There's, there's no, you know, there's, there's no unwritten rule against it in the NBA. How come we can't do it in the NHL? I, I really feel like if you're someone who loves offer sheets and you want to see them happen more often, 
And I think most fans fall into that category right up until it's your team that's that's on the receiving end, and then you're not sure. Um, you should be rooting for Carolina to get the player here because I, I think that that's what maybe opens the door and changes some thinking. And if Montreal just matches uh, and walks away from it, then uh, I, I think it may be a while before we see another one of these. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, uh, Carolina and Montreal, Sean, this has become, uh, in the last week, certainly the spiciest story and the most, uh, you know, the, the the thing filled with the most animosity in the NHL. It has sort of pushed Jack Eichel v. the Buffalo Sabres to the background. But there was some news here, right, in the last week or so with Eichel changing agents. He goes to CAA's Pat Brisson. He uh, was previously repped by a couple of guys from uh, from Boston in, in Peter Fish and Peter Donatelli. So he's out with Donatelli and Fish. He's in with Pat Brisson. I don't know if this is going to grease the tracks for anything. And I, I don't know. Maybe these stories are all connected. Maybe the Habs find a way to get Jack Eichel. That's that's also there. But my question to you is, what is as we head into Labor Day weekend, how does Kevin Adams come out of this looking okay? Or is there? Do you see, Sean, any path for Kevin Adams to get out of this situation with some degree of success. Yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, at this point, I it doesn't feel like the question any longer is how do you get fair value for Jack Eichel? It's it's how do you get as many pennies on the dollar for this guy as you possibly can? And uh and and look, we all we all know the situation, we all know where the leverage is. I don't think any of us at this point, are expecting Kevin Adams to get a franchise-changing windfall like you may have got a year ago if you had if you had moved him last summer when he was healthy. the The injury changes things. The fact that he's coming off a bad year changes things. Um, that this is uh, it, it's a bad situation. And and I'm would imagine that Kevin Adams would love to be done with this already. He he. Probably would have loved to have gotten a great offer at the draft or or somewhere around there and and moved on. Clearly, that didn't happen, uh, at least in his eyes. Is that because his demands are unrealistic? Maybe. Um, or is it because everyone in the league knows the situation and he's just being lowballed? And at a certain point, you've got to be realistic about what you can get. But if the offers just aren't there, you, you, it, it doesn't make the Sabres any better to trade this guy for next to nothing. Uh, you've got to get something that you can hang your hat on for, for going forward. So in terms of your question, what's the, the path out of this? I, I think we can assume that the offers have not been there yet. Uh, the injury situation probably is a, is a big piece of that. I'm wondering if the path for Kevin Adams isn't that he calls up Jack Eichel and his people and says, look, I'm not giving you away for nothing. All the offers I have on the table right now would amount to me giving you away for nothing. So I'm not doing it. You are Sabres property for the next four years. Let's figure out what to do with this injury. That's that's the, the, in terms of what types of surgery he has. That's a whole different 
debate, but let's figure this out. Let's get you back healthy. Come back to Buffalo. Put on the uniform. Get on the ice. Show that you're still an elite player. And by that point, you know, some other contender will have an injury or a hole in their lineup. They'll see you're playing. They'll see that you're healthy. The injury questions go away. The offers will get better. And I will move you at that point. But I can't do it right now. Uh, because the 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 offers and the question marks just aren't there, and I will not make a move that's going to cripple the Buffalo Sabers going forward. Um, that's a scenario I could see playing out, and then it becomes very interesting. What does Jack Eichel do? Because does he say, "Okay, I you know I'm going to get healthy, I'm going to show up, I'm going to play my heart out for the Sabers and show everyone that I'm an elite player in this league"? Um, does he come back, but he's not happy about it? Does he sulk his way through it? Or does he say, you know what? No, I'm not coming back. I'm done. I've played my last game for the Sabres and trade me or I'll sit at home and you'll get nothing at all and see how good your team is then. Uh, and, uh, you know, when when you see a guy switch agents like this, you wonder, is he battening down the hatches for, for the storm that's to come? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, obviously there's, there's a ton of behind the scenes maneuvering here and conversations that we're not party to. Um, but I'm I'm really interested to see how this plays out because I'm, I'm starting to think that that might be the only play for the Sabres is to say, we need you back and you haven't played your last game for the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, we, we need you back and in the lineup. And then the question becomes, is Jack Eichel open to that? Or does he say, you know what? No, I'm done. Give me a call when I'm traded because I, I played my last NHL game until then. All right, tell you what, Sean, you know, I think in the month of August, we had a lot of fun. We did some kind of out-of-the-box, kind of big-picture fun uh, shows that, uh, you know, hit on what-ifs and Hall of Fame debates and, and some things. And we got a ton of feedback that, that we haven't had a chance to get to. So we want to remind all of our listeners here to The Athletic Hockey Show, you can drop us a line, theathletichockeyshow at gmail.com. So if you want to send us an email, any feedback you have, even like this episode about Kotkaniemi or Eichel or anything we've hit on, theathletichockeyshow at gmail.com. But we want to remind you as we kick off a new season here and into the fall, we love hearing your voice and we love getting voicemails. And you can do that by dropping us a voicemail at 845-445-8459. 845-445-8459. And Sean, that's exactly what this fan did. Now, this person didn't leave their name. We would love to get, next time you're leaving us a voicemail, leave your name. But we'll just call this uh, disgruntled Devils fan or angry, angry Devils fan. Have a listen. Uh, this is in response to our Hall of Fame debate. And this, uh, this Devils fan feels like we had a significant omission. Hey, so I just listened to the Hall of Fame debate. And I'll be honest, it is just so biased towards the players that played in Canadian markets. It makes me sick. I mean, you guys want to talk about Daniel Alfredson for 10, 15 minutes. You want to talk about a winger with a winning pedigree and has just as good numbers as Daniel Alfredson, look no further than Patrick Elias. I mean, come on. Guy leads the franchise in goals, assists, and points and has two Stanley Cups. And he also never took a slap shot at Scott Niedermeyer at the end of the period. So that's really all I have to say about that. All right. Uh, You could sense the passion. Uh, and the shot at Alfredson uh, was in there. Look, um, I think this 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 caller makes a couple of really good points, and I, and I do think when when we talk about those great Devils teams of the late '90s, early 2000s, I think of Brodeur and 
Stevens and Niedermeyer and, you know, whatever. I think Patrick Eliash is criminally underrated. And I do think there is a case to be made that he deserves the same consideration for the Hall of Fame as an Alfredson, as, a, you know, Roanick or whoever you want to put on that periphery. So I actually agree with this. Uh, caller, I do apologize that maybe we we omitted uh, Eliash. There's probably some other guys we omitted, but I do think Sean, there's a case for Patrick Eliash to make the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I think there's a case, and and yeah, thank thank you to this caller for for calling in and, and interrupting apparently his drum practice in an abandoned warehouse uh, that uh, that that he was calling us from. Uh, it, look, it, Patrick Eliash Hall of Fame conversation. Yeah, I think he can be in. The conversation. Uh, I think a lot of that conversation goes pretty similarly to the Daniel Alfredson conversation, which is these guys were both had long careers, essentially overlapped each other. So we don't even have to worry about era uh, when we look at the two of them. Um, and, and you know, you look at Patrick Elias, good player, but this guy is a, he's a, he's a forward who scored just barely over 400 goals, got just barely over 1,000 points in a 20-year career. Uh, never won a major award, was a, a postseason all-star once, um, was a very good player. You said underrated. I, I think that's that's probably accurate. He probably was a guy who, who didn't get enough credit, but also was never anywhere near the the best winger in, in the world conversation that, that you sometimes like to see for Hall of Famers. Um, and was a guy who, uh, you know, the, the I, I think the case for him maybe as the caller, you know, the caller I think said he had a winning pedigree. Uh, that that's not a thing. Um, but he did win two Stanley Cups. He won two Stanley Cups as at best the fourth most important player on his team. And again, that's not a knock. I like the player a lot. Um, but he was the fourth best player on those Devils teams that won two Stanley Cups. So I, I'm not sure that. Um, he necessarily put him in. Now, Kevin Lowe got in the Hall of Fame based on being a lot lower down the list of uh, on on a multi-time Stanley Cup winner. But um, I think there's a difference between having six rings and two. Uh, Patrick Elias was a real good player, but for a guy who was a solid two-way player, because everybody in New Jersey was, but was only in the top 10 in Selkie voting, I think once in his entire career, 400 goals and 1,000 points, I don't think gets you in. And, you know, if we're comparing him to Daniel Alfredson, where I said on the episode, I think Alfredson's case is, is kind of a coin flip. Um, Daniel Alfredson outscored him by, I think something like 50 goals and, and 150 points. So um, if, uh, if, if Alfredson gets in, maybe that opens the door, but I, I don't see how LF gets in before Daniel Alfredson, unless you're just going based on the fact that he had two Stanley cups. And, and I don't think that should be enough. But I, but I do think in, in Eliash's defense, if you are your franchise's all-time leader in goals, assists, and points, and you won two Stanley Cups, like I, there's something to be said. Like I do think that we do overlook uh, Patrick Eliash. But like, like that, that's why it's a Hall of Fame debate show, right? It's because there's legitimate debates. It's not the Hall of Fame slam dunk show because that yeah. that wouldn't be uh, that wouldn't be compelling. Now we did also have a show about the most likable players. Okay, the players that we thought, if you were coming up with a list of the most universally liked players in hockey history, who makes the list? And so 
in that episode, we did have some, and, and again, just like we omitted Patrick Elias from the Hall of Fame debate, uh, which that caller says we shouldn't have done. We had some emails here. Justin from Rochester uh, says, um, I could not believe you left Henrik Lundqvist off the list. Um, so that was that was huge. And I think a part of, you know, Justin also says, I think, is there anything to be said about the nationality of the players that seems to make them more likable or not? Uh, he says, I think that it seems like people from non-traditional countries, like a Jonas Hiller or Anse Kopitar or Matt Zuccarello, they seem to be generally well-liked. While um, people with these kind of big rivalries, like Don Cherry versus everybody else, or Nick Backstrom at the Olympics or whatever, um, it feels like their fans are a little bit more divided. So Justin is saying, look, first of all, and he's probably right. Like, we probably shouldn't have left Henrik Lundqvist off the list. Like, he is legitimately one of the most likable players in, of all time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you could absolutely make a case for for Henrik Lundqvist to be on that list. It's it's a little tough given that his career has just ended. We Maybe we let it, especially under the circumstances it did with the health problems, maybe we, we let it settle and see where he stands in a couple of years. But yeah, he's he sure, you want to put him on your list. I, I don't have an issue with that. Um, whether nationality comes into play, I I don't know. I, I don't know if it does anymore. Certainly, there was a time in in the '90s, for example, where if you were European, that worked against you. There, there was this this idea of the flashy European who was, you know, coming over and there, here's this game full of hardworking North American boys, and these guys come in with their fancy hair and they just want to score goals and all of that. And it was nonsense at the time. But even guys that we look back on now is very popular. Timo Solani and guys like that, Jagger. Uh, were were sort of viewed in a certain way back then, and, and thankfully we've gotten past that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think you know certainly when it comes to showing personality, uh, being able to speak the language is 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 part of that. When you see European players come over and and maybe struggle with English, then uh, at least earlier in their careers, they don't get a chance to show their personality in the same way that uh, that other players do. Maybe that's a factor. Beyond that, I don't know. Uh, I you know I'm. I'm not sure that it does, but uh, you know, I, maybe different fans with different perspectives would uh, would feel differently. Uh, Tyler also says, when you guys are talking about the most likable players, in my opinion, you can't have a likable player list without Saku Koivu on it. Uh, beloved by so many, his return to play after uh, battling cancer was legendary. So, yeah, I think that's, again, we, we, we always leave room. I hope people, I hope our listeners know this. We always leave room for the fact that we may have missed things. We may have over, there's oversights. There's just omissions that, yeah. You know, sometimes things just don't get on our radar, right? And yeah. um, I think. And Saku when we Kofi sit down and say, "Here's a list of 10, we're not necessarily saying, "Here's a list of the only ten. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I, Saku Koi was a great, a great, uh, a, a great addition, and uh, yeah, I, I think you could absolutely have him on that list. Um, certainly beloved in Montreal, beloved in Anaheim, and uh, around the league. I I don't know of anyone who. Uh, who who has strong feelings against Saku Koivu, especially given everything he had to overcome in, in his career. So, you know, like I said, we did a Hall of Fame show. We did a likable show. We also did a what-if show. And th- the what-if show was really fun, where we just said, what if this happened? Or what if this transpired in, in hockey history? And uh, we got a couple of, uh, you know, uh, notes from our listeners here just uh, on feedback things. So Phil, uh, Phil has uh, emailed us. Uh, and Phil says, as a longtime Los Angeles native and Kings fan, 
I'm less interested in your what-if questions about Wayne Gretzky and his high stick against Toronto, although I fully understand the Canadian obsession with it. But I'm more interested in the what-if around Marty McSorley's illegal stick in the Stanley Cup final. There's a lot of bitterness among the LA fans uh, about that particular call. So that comes in from Fel. And that, that is a good one. Like it's, it's funny, Like in the span of probably a week of real time, the LA Kings were involved in two of the most infamous stick-related plays in hockey history. One is Gretzky and the, and the high stick missed on Gilmore in Game 6 overtime. And then, about, like I said, about a week later, probably, Marty McSorley uh, with the illegal stick. So let's play out Phil's what if. What if the Montreal Canadiens and their head coach, Jacques Demers, Sean, don't call for the illegal stick on Marty McSorley? What happens? Yeah, it's it's that's that's a great one. And uh, yeah, same referee in both cases too, Kerry Fraser. Uh, it's, uh, I think you can make a strong case that the Kings win the Stanley Cup that year. They probably win that game because they're up a goal uh, at the end of regulation when that, that call gets made. Eric Desjardins scores the goal to tie with the goalie out. And then goes on and, and scores the winner in overtime. If they win that game, they're going back to LA. They're up two nothing. Um, there, there's a real good chance they win that series. Now, obviously, L, uh, Montreal goes on. They win the two games in LA in overtime. Maybe that still happens, and we go back to to Montreal and and we're tied. And and who knows? Um, but yeah, if you're if you're a Kings fan and you want to say that call cost us the Stanley Cup in '93, I'm not sure. That you're entirely wrong. And, uh, you know, to flip that around, I think you could make a good case that Jacques Demers made a decision behind, a single decision behind the bench that won his team a Stanley Cup that they otherwise wouldn't have won. Uh, which is uh, it, another reason why I, I think Jacques Demers should be in the Hall of Fame as a coach. The, the only guy to ever win back-to-back Jack Adams and a guy who won a Stanley Cup for the Montreal Canadiens by by making a very gutsy call uh, behind the bench, um, and and yeah, maybe maybe that decision was what cost the LA Kings the Stanley Cup. I, I I'm I'm not necessarily going to try to to talk Phil out of that. It, it's one of the rare instances because I think if you look at other sports, you can sometimes directly see the coach or the manager's influence strategically in a game, right? Like you think of baseball, I always think of Grady Little. Um, Grady Little leaves Pedro in in 03. We know how that played out. Or I think of in the NFL, I think I always think of Sean Payton and his onside kick call in the Super Bowl that really it changed the momentum. And again, these are calculated decisions based on strategy and there's a, an element of rolling the dice. You don't often see that in hockey. And I think that's what Jacques Demers did. He's like, you know, screw it. I'm going to roll the dice. Right? Yeah. Like, and, and, and I mean, I, I it's... It's funny because I love Jacques Demers and I want to give him all the credit for this, but I can hear all the Kings fans screaming at us right now saying he didn't roll the dice because he knew it was an illegal right. stick because Montreal cheated to get in there and get access to the equipment and all of the, the conspiracy theories that, that go with that. Uh, it's it's a great underrated play in, in NHL history, the, the fact that... Uh, the fact that that's out there and maybe, hey, maybe that's why this this country can't win a Stanley Cup. Maybe the hockey <laughs> gods were angered by uh, by Jacques Demers calling for that measurement. I, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, one other what if question was uh, posed to us by uh, Patrick Craig, who as, as soon as I read that, I was like, wow, Craig Patrick listens to our show. Yeah. And I know mean, it's <laughs> Patrick Craig. So it's the other way around. Uh, but Patrick has emailed us and said, go back to the 1996 Stanley Cup playoffs. 
What if Grant Fewer doesn't injure his knee against, uh, well, it was against Toronto. Uh, do you think the Blues beat Detroit in the next round? And maybe St. Louis gets to the conference final against Colorado. And, and you think about that, what if, like, then we, I think we don't see the Colorado-Detroit rivalry we don't. explode. I mean, it probably uh, comes down the road. We, we do get some great games. But that was the definitive like catalyst, right? That that was the the igniter. It was the '96, right? The playoffs is what pushed mm-hmm. it all over the edge with Lemieux and Draper and and everything. Like this is a great what if question. What if Grand Fear doesn't get hurt? Do the Blues beat Detroit in the second round? Yeah, and I think that is the big what if. Uh, it, it, the repercussion is if that Blues team with Wayne Gretzky, they, and that was a loaded team. They weren't a very good team in the regular season, but they were loaded with Hall of Famers, uh, if they beat Detroit, then first of all, we don't get the, the we, we don't get the Detroit-Colorado rivalry the way we had it. We, they would still be two very good teams and they'd have a rivalry in that sense, but we don't get the Claude Lemieux-Chris Draper hit, which means we don't get Darren McCarty, which means we don't get Wah versus Vernon and, and everything that, that flows after that. Um, you know, maybe St. Louis ends that series earlier. If, if, if St. Louis beats Detroit that year, that Detroit Red Wings team probably gets blown up. Remember, this was back when Detroit couldn't win the big one. They had, uh, um, you know, they and they ended up losing to Colorado in the next round. But if if they can't even get past St. Louis, get out of the division, maybe it comes even sooner. Does Wayne Gretzky stay in St. Louis if the Blues go on a long run? Maybe the Blues even win the Stanley Cup. Does Does Gretzky stick around, or does he still want no part of Mike Keenan? Um, there's a ton of what ifs on that, and it's it 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 is really interesting stuff. Now, I I would point out. John Casey comes in as the backup, you know, that, that famous game where Steve Eisenman scores the double overtime winner, that was a one, nothing game. So John Casey shut out the Detroit Red Wings for four plus periods. I, I don't know that you necessarily point to him and say, he's the reason that, that they didn't win, but uh, it, yeah, that is another good one. And I do want to say, by the way, thank you to, to Patrick. I did appreciate as a Leafs fan, I did appreciate his phrasing there uh, of, you know, Grant Fear injuring his knee as if it, as if it was just something that happened, yeah. <laughs> and not Nick Kiprios uh, performing a people's elbow directly onto Grant Fear's ACL uh, in the playoffs, which is one of the kind of low key, probably more controversial plays <laughs> that the Leafs have been involved in. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a good one, and yeah, if you're a Blues fan, I know you're looking at that team. If 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 you don't remember the 95-96 Blues, go and look them up. You will be stunned at the level of talent, or at least the level of name, big names that were on that team. Mike Keenan put an all-star team together, and it didn't really work in the regular season, but it almost worked in the playoffs, and maybe it would have if Grant Fuhr had been there. Yeah. All right. As we always do, Sean, too, we uh, kind of we roll back into September. Like I said, August, we had a lot of fun kind of going outside of our usual format and doing some big picture fun things. But as we get back into the fall and get back into kind of what we usually do on the Athletic Hockey Show Thursday uh, episodes, we wrap up with a little This Week in Hockey History because I think our listeners can really benefit from, you know, your expertise in particular on, on some fun, interesting moments in the history of hockey. So This Week in Hockey History, you wouldn't think the first week of September would be full of moments, but there are a couple. Let's start with this. Let's go back to September 2nd, 1972. So... September 2nd, 1972, it was game one of the Summit Series. And it was the Soviet Union 
who is largely an unknown uh, entity, playing Team Canada at the Montreal Forum. And Sean, the Soviets beat Canada 7-3 in what I think has to be one of the most shocking event uh, results ever in a hockey game. Because again, at the time, I think you're thinking, oh, we've got Team Canada, we got, you know, Esposito, and we've got our best, you know, our best players are going to take on these guys from this country behind the Iron Curtain. We don't even know. But not only do the Soviets beat Canada, like they beat them 7-3. This wasn't a 2-1 plucky uh, victory. where like they, they schooled them. And I think, Sean, the 7-3 win has to go down as one of the most shocking results in a hockey game ever. Yeah, I, and you know what? I, I like the way you phrase that. The most shocking result? Yeah, I think so. Not the biggest upset. I, I, and, and you know, you, you could kind of use those two terms interchangeably. But what was interesting here is, you know, in hindsight, I think for modern fans uh, and younger fans, they may look back on this and go, why were people so surprised? It's, you know, it was the Russians. The Russians are great at hockey. Um, and we know, that, of course, that Canada and the Soviets would go on to, for the next couple of decades, have this rivalry going back and forth for, for who was hockey's superpower. But back then in 72 at least in North America, everybody assumed Canada was going to have an easy time with this. It was going to be a fun little exhibition. We were going to, you know, see what the Soviets were made of, but Canada was going to, in the eight-game series, probably win seven or eight games. That's that's a big part of why it wasn't a seven-game, a best-of-seven series, because if it was best-of-seven, it was only going to last four games, probably. You had to make sure that it was you were going to get the full, the full eight games uh, so that both countries could host. And it was a shocking result to see Canada just get manhandled like that, even though you could certainly make the case that if if we had all been paying attention and we all understood how good the Soviets were, we wouldn't have been shocked. Um, but at least here in Canada and in North America, it was. It was a complete shock, even though looking back, maybe it shouldn't have been. You know, and I think so, obviously, for a lot of our younger uh, listeners to the podcast, they, you know, heck, you and I weren't even born for this this summit series. So if we if we move forward now, and let's just look at the 21st century, is there an equivalent in terms of a shocker in the hockey world? Like the one I think of is Tommy Salo and that meltdown in yep. the uh, 02 Olympics. Is that is that the one where Sweden loses to Belarus in the Olympics? Is that the most shocking hockey result of the 21st century? I I, th- I think probably at least in terms of international play, that's probably the one, and that one is an upset, right? I mean, that one is shocking because uh, because of the 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 upset value. Uh, that one, I would say, on the men's side, and and then on the, on the women's side, maybe a couple of years ago when Finland sort of made a run and finally disrupted the U.S. Canada uh, dominance, and on the women's side, maybe would would be another one you'd put in there. But uh, yeah, I think you know that's. Uh, those those are examples of the sort of uh, you know result where you're sitting there going there's there's no way and of course 72 um, it, the the Soviets go on to continue to dominate for the next few games of the series the Canadian games it's uh, you know I, I think you put Sweden and Belarus back on the ice Sweden probably wins the next uh, you know the next seven games if they get the chance but uh, yeah the Soviets gave Canada everything they could handle and then of course that all leads to the the, the famous Paul Henderson goal that, uh, that this entire country hasn't shut up about ever since. Man, I'm surprised we didn't get into Hall of Fame debate Paul Henderson. That would have been fun. All right. Um, <laughs> let's wrap up this edition of the Athletic Hockey Show by kind of, we're going to we're gonna make this go full circle because we opened up the podcast talking about a contentious situation between the Montreal Canadiens 
the Carolina Hurricanes about Jesperi Kotkaniemi. Well, 30 years ago, in September of 1991, John, an independent arbitrator awarded the New Jersey Devils Scott Stevens as compensation for St. Louis signing Brendan Shanahan as a restricted free agent. So what was the, I mean, was there, what's the bad blood between St. Louis and New Jersey back in the day? And um, this is one of the biggest transactions I think we've ever seen in the NHL. Yeah. And it was, it was huge. And boy, I mean, you talk about offer sheet drama that this was back in the days of, of RFAs. Uh, it, it was, it, it was a big deal. And, and it was the St. Louis blues. It was, you know, ronk around in the blues saying, Hey, we have the ability to sign other teams, RFAs. And they went and they did it. They, they got Scott Stevens out of Washington. Scott Stevens at the time was a very young defenseman, but was already fairly well established as one of the, the best and, and certainly most physical players in the NHL. Uh, St. Louis goes and signs him. They give up five first round picks, huge compensation to Washington uh, but they get him, and he plays very well in his first year in St. Louis. Wants to be there. Uh, it looks like he's going to be a key piece for for the long term. So the next offseason comes along. St. Louis says, "Hey, it worked once. Let's do it again." So they go after Brendan Shanahan uh, from New Jersey. Now, under the rules at the time, that meant that the the way compensation worked was both teams submitted what they argued would be a fair trade, and then an arbitrator had to pick one. St. Louis says, okay, for Brendan Shanahan, we're going to give you two good young players, guys you probably heard of, Rod Brindamore and Curtis Joseph. And I think there were some, some picks involved. A lot of people looked at that and went, that's that's very fair compensation for Brendan Shanahan. But New Jersey and Lou Lamorello decide, you know what? If We've already got a pretty good offer as the baseline. Let's shoot for the moon. We're going to ask for Scott Stevens. And the arbitrator agrees. And it was a shocking result at the time. Nobody, everybody had just kind of assumed that it was going to be Joseph and Brindamore, but the arbitrator gives uh, Scott Stevens to the New Jersey Devils, and that's how the Devils acquire the guy who would go on to become uh, a, a key piece of of three Stanley Cups. And, uh, it, you know, what's interesting about this is uh, one piece of this that a lot of people don't remember is Scott Stevens was furious at the time, Scott Stevens did not want to play for the New Jersey Devils. In fact, he refused to report. He said, I'm not going. Uh, figure out a way to undo this, figure out, do a trade, do something. Um, but Lou Lamorello dug in his heels, not not surprisingly. And eventually, Scott Stevens did report. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny that these days, I mean, you picture Scott Stevens in your head. He's wearing a Devils uniform. Of course, um, he's he's one of the all time greats in in the history of that franchise. Uh, but at the time, didn't want to be there. And the other piece of this, a lot of people forget, is a couple years later, when his contract ends, he goes and signs back with St. Louis or tries to in like '94, I want to say. Uh, and and New Jersey not only ends up retaining him, but makes an accusation of tampering. And there's this whole big thing. Did, did St. Louis tamper with, with Scott Stevens? Turns out they did. They basically had, had uh, evidence that they had given him, uh, given Scott Stevens his contract before, uh, you know, when he was still New Jersey devil's property and they ended up losing a bunch of draft picks for it. It was this whole, uh, whole big ordeal. So St. Louis really got burned on the Scott Stevens thing twice uh, in terms of free agency. But, Man, you want to talk about a what if in hockey history? What if Scott Stevens doesn't wind up with the New Jersey Devils? Do they win 
any of those three Stanley Cups, let alone all three. And if if not, what what happens if St. Louis gets him back in '94? Um, boy, that that would set off a whole chain reaction of uh, of results. Um, but it it ended up we didn't see it because you don't want to play uh, poker with Lou Lamorello and you don't want to get him mad. And uh, the Blues tried both of those things and it didn't go well for them. You know, I, I think about this too, and this happened September 3rd, 1991. If I'm not mistaken, Sean, that week, Scott Stevens and Brendan Shanahan were teammates for Team Canada at the Canada Cup. And I always thought, like, wouldn't that be super awkward? Like, you basically got traded for each other and one guy doesn't want to go and it's like against your will. And it's like, now you're, t- they, they were teammates, right? In the yeah. 91 Canada Cup. They would have been. Yeah, that 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 would have been a, a real... Awkward situation. Yeah. You also got Eric Lindros is there. He's refusing to report to Quebec. So I that that would have been a hell of a dressing room. And yeah, just wonder if Scott Stevens and Eric Lindros had any conversations about how unhappy they were on their new teams. And <laughs> yeah. hey, yeah, maybe I'll see you again down the line in a few years. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Hey, listen, we'll leave it there. This was a lot of fun uh, going back to our uh, kind of usual format. And again, there'll be no shortage of stuff here as we kind of get into Labor Day and, uh, and the... Uh, the start of the season so listen this was a blast and uh, we want to remind people too as we get back into the swing of things our friday edition of the athletic hockey show will come your way uh, with Corey Promen, max boltman it is the return of the prospects edition and Corey has uh, uh ranked all the teams in the nhl based on their under 23 players the old prospect pipeline uh buffalo sabers fans you're going to want to actually tune into this one because your team's at the top of the heap so uh, make sure you uh tune into that and a reminder Email us any questions you have, theathletichockeyshow at gmail.com, theathletichockeyshow at gmail.com, or like I said, drop us a voicemail at 845-445-8459. And if you're not a subscriber with us, you can become an athletic subscriber for 50% off an annual subscription by going to theathletic.com slash hockey show.